0: This is the Asade Podcast Channel, audio pills to get inspired. Go ahead and, uh, and get started. Um, thank you so much for, for attending this session on uh, behavioral research um, for consumer protection. My name is uh, Um Hi. I am the uh, i the newest addition uh, to, the, to the marketing department at, uh, at Asade. I joined about uh, about a year ago. Um, and I moved here from, from Boulder, Colorado. I'm guessing that most of you have never heard of uh, of Boulder. Um, but Boulder is, is one of the happiest cities, um, the happiest city in the US, and, and probably one of the happiest cities in, in the world. Really, it's remarkable. Um, if you've never been there, I, I highly recommend going there. Everyone is always smiling and laughing and liking and, um People are really happy. Um, so I moved from there to here, and um, Barcelona is obviously a and a wonderful institution as well. Um, I was a member of the the marketing faculty at the University of Colorado, which is a a great university located in in Boulder. And I was also a member of the Center for Consumer Financial Decision Making. Okay, So what I'm doing in my day to day life is I I research how people, consumers and managers, make um, make decisions about about a variety um, of uh, of topics. And I examine some of the the pitfalls that people they encounter, when they make decisions, and then what can be done to, to alleviate some of the, um, some of the problems that, and, and the biases um, that, that people uh, experience. Um, so this is a, a picture of a decision maker um, at, at the turn of, of the century, okay? So, so in the year 2000, okay? Picture of a decision maker's brain, and so you, you get a, a good view of this, this person here. Now, decision makers today look exactly the same. As decision makers um, 20 years ago. Exactly the same. But something really important has changed. Any anyone a clue about what, what has changed? Right, so the, the, the decision making is, is exactly the same, but the environment has changed. Um, the environment is, is is much more data-driven. We live in a world of, of data. Data is everywhere, it influences everything. Um, we do it influences everything consumers do, managers do, how businesses operate, um, etc. And, uh, and so it's really important to understand how data influences um, consumer decision-making. And many people believe that we live in an age of, of, of data and that data provides opportunities to, to educate ourselves. We have an unprecedented opportunity to educate ourselves before, um, before we make decisions. So in a way information um, is, uh, is power. Now, um, in, in 1962, John F. Kennedy uh, proposed the, uh, the Consumer Bill of Rights. And, uh, and he, he, he argued that consumers have the, have the right to be informed. And this was later also incorporated in the, uh, in the United Nations guidelines for consumer protection. And they added that not only consumers have the right to be informed, consumers have also the right to be uh, educated. So we need to provide them with the information, but also we need to teach them the skills and the tools for processing um, this information. So many believe, given this rise of data and the, rise, the availability of information, that we, live, we, we have a, a unique time here where consumers are more powerful than ever, better informed than ever, and in a better position to, to make good decisions. Consumers are, um, are very well protected by information. What I want to do today is, is question this, this idea, this idea that information is power and indeed leads to um, better decision-making and what I what I'll do is describe um, Some of my own research in in two domains. The first domain is, is uh, consumer finance. Okay, so we, have, we make a lot of financial decisions um, and and how does information affect our decision-making in that area and the second one is is uh, online retailing We don't go as much to physical stores anymore we purchase a lot of products online or we search for products online and then go to physical stores how does that information that is accessible online influence our um, purchase decisions? Are we making better, more informed decisions, or, or perhaps, uh, perhaps not? Okay, so let me start with, uh, with the first domain consumer um, investing. So, consumers more and more are held personally responsible to make financial decisions that have important implications um, for their welfare. Okay, so the welfare states around the world are eroding. And as a consequence, people need to save for their own retirement. People need to take additional health insurances, life insurance, etc. Um, and making important financial decisions like this is is uh, is complex. It's complex because there is a lot of uncertainty involved. If you save invest some of your money now in the stock market um, for when you retire, it's un- there's uncertainty about what the returns are going to be. Um, a lot of Financial problems are non-linear also, and people have a hard time thinking about non-linear problems. Think about compound interest, exponential growth. People have a hard time thinking accurately about non-linear problems like that. Um, there's complex, um, complex um, words, um, and, uh, and people have a hard time on So think about, you go to a bank, and, and you're shopping for a mortgage. You're bombarded with terminology that most of us um, don't understand. Um, so financial decision makings are really important. They're also um, very complex. And so, the what what is the solution to this problem? Many people believe that it's education, right? It's, if the problem is complex, we can educate consumers to better deal with this complexity and and make uh, better uh, make better decisions. In fact, some of the some of the wealthiest people on this planet um, say that when you're investing money in the in the stock market, you should. You should always invest it in things that you understand, right? Invest in things that you know. Educate yourself and in, in, in invest in things that, that you're able to understand, so that you can evaluate whether the company that you're investing in is a good investment opportunity, yes, um, yes or no. Um, and this, this advice makes a lot of sense. I think very few people would disagree that if we educate ourselves, we're in a better position to make good financial decisions. And today, um, it's become much easier for consumers to educate themselves, given the recent advances in, in financial tech. For instance, here's an app um, called Bitly that makes it uh, that makes it easier for consumers to identify stocks that are um, that are valuable or good investment opportunities. Um, you have information at your fingertips. You take out your phone, and you can get very detailed information about the financials of a company. Um, and supposedly, this might help you to make um, better decisions. Here's another example. Um, Fidelity's uh, brokerage app recently introduced a new tool called Stocks Nearby. And um, this is uh, from their uh, press release. So as the investing maxim goes, buy what you know, says the senior vice uh, president from uh, Fidelity. The Fidelity Stocks Nearby tool, tool enables investors to immediately research businesses that show promise on the go. Imagine an investor coming up on a store that is packed with customers with stocks nearby They can easily begin to answer the question if it's a good investing opportunity. So you get this this thing, right? You're walking around Barcelona. You see a store. Ooh, wow, it's going inside. Wow, there's a lot of other customers. Take out your phone, and you can immediately start to examine the company, whether it's a good. And you can immediately invest in a company as well. Is this good? Is this bad? Will this increase decision quality? Or or might this actually harm um, decision quality? I think these, these are important. Um, questions to to answer. Um, So again, I want to say the idea that education is an antidote antidote to to ignorance um, makes a lot of sense. But there are a few issues related to the psychology of understanding that that question whether education might always work. So to illustrate, let me ask you a very simple question, unrelated question. Do you know how toilet works? If you ask this question to most people, and you ask them, like, hey, rate this on a scale from one to seven, they'll say, yeah, seven. I know how a toilet works. Or six. Most people feel very confident that they understand how a toilet works. But then when you ask them to explain, this is what you're getting. There's a button, and I push it, and the water, and everything else goes away, and that's it. So people have a very superficial understanding of how a toilet works. Not only toilets, but most things in life. So cognitive scientists call this the illusion of explanatory depth. And they've examined this um, for daily objects like toilets and zippers or more complex objects like helicopters. But also other domains like political issues, for instance. Um, and, and the defining the across these domains is that people's objective understanding, what people really know, is very, very, very limited, very superficial, yet people's subjective understanding, their sense of understanding, is very high. So our subjective sense of understanding gives us a m- misleading information about what we, truly, um, what we truly know. And so you can see that there, there may be a problem here. If we give people information, that might have, have an effect on people's sense of understanding, but maybe not immediately change their objective understanding. People might act, make financial decisions based on their sense of understanding and make problematic decisions. Um, these smart guys, these wealthy guys, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, um, they realize this. Right? So they're known for, inv- for recommending consumers to invest in what they know. But they also realize that consumers don't really take, um, really understand their advice. So Peter Lynch wrote in the, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal, I've never said if you go to a mall, see a Starbucks, and say it's good coffee, you should call Fidelity Brokerage and buy a stock. People buy a stock, and they don't know nothing about it. So their recommendation to invest in what you understand is you need to do deep research, a lot of hard thinking and um, consumers may not really interpret that advice in that in that way so um, in, in, an, in an article that is for in the in the uh, Journal of Marketing research, we did a bunch of studies um, to to examine why people oftentimes might misapply this uh, this investment advice to um, to invest in what you know. So the first series of studies um, was very simple. It's a bunch of studies, and I'll describe you the, the the main result. We presented investors; these are lay investors, okay, people like like us, um, with uh, with all company descriptions from the from the S and P five hundred. These are basically the five hundred largest uh, companies. Not every individual saw all the five hundred companies. A subset, right? Everyone saw a subset, but. Taken over uh, across all our respondents, we have ratings for all the 500 companies of the, the S&P uh, 500. And we asked them two questions in addition to another uh, set of control variables, which I will not get into. But the first question is, we asked, how well do you understand what this company does? Okay, so here's a description. How well do you understand what this company does? And the second is, how risky would you um, rate this company's stock if you were to invest in it? How, how risky is it? Um, so to give you one example, of a company profile that that our respondents uh, might see. This is Cisco Cisco Corporation, um, distributes a range of food and related products primarily to the food service or food away from home industry. In a variety um, of countries, the company distributes a line of frozen food, such as meat, seafood, fully prepared entrees, fruits, vegetables, and desserts. How does this feel to you? Understandable? Do you understand what the company does? Most people say, yeah, I understand what and then, is this, is this risky or not risky to invest in this company on a scale from uh, one to seven? Okay, So, a variety of company descriptions like this, um, some more easy, some hardier, harder. Um, here's an example, for instance, of a, of a more difficult company, Lionel Basel um, Industries. Operates as a chemical company worldwide. Um, five segments, olefins and polyolefins, blah, 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 more, more, uh, more complex. Okay? Um, and, and here's the here's a basic result. So this is this is a, a, a scatter plot showing on the horizontal axis people's sense of understanding. So every dot here, every circle in the scatter plot is um, is is a company, okay, a stock, and this is the average sense of understanding right, for this company. people rated it uh, about six for understanding, and then here you can see how risky um, this company was rated another company has an average understanding and a perceived risk and what you can see is that there is a negative relationship between sense of understanding and perceived risk such that on average companies that are rated as easier to understand like Cisco are seen as less risky. People believe that things they understand are less risky to invest in. What we also did is after we collected all this uh, data from the judgment of participants we looked at the actual volatility, the actual riskiness of these um, companies, of these uh, stocks, a year after collecting the data. Right? So we could see whether, whether people were actually right. What do you think? Is there a relationship between people's sense of understanding and risk? There is no relationship whatsoever. Okay? So cap and beta is a measure of how much a stock price moves relative to the uh, market. So no relationship between people's sense of understanding and risk. So if you're, if you're evaluating risk, As a consumer, based on your sense of understanding of what a company does, you're not making um, appropriate inferences. In another series of studies, we didn't didn't just ask people to rate um, how risky something was on a scale from one to seven, but we used a more sophisticated tool, which we call a distribution builder. Um, And with a distribution builder, you can make multiple predictions for what the the, uh, rate of return of a company, of a specific stock, might be okay. So here you have um, you have these different categories, right? So for Cisco, for instance, will it will it increase more than nine percent, right, from this to next month or to next year or whatever, seven to nine percent, five to seven percent, etc. And you can add predictions to these different buckets by I don't think you can see this, but these are plus and minus nine, okay? So you're you're effectively making a distribution. So this participant thinks that the most likely outcome for this company is that it will increase with about one to three percent. Um, There's also a good chance that it will decrease with minus 1 to to, uh, minus 3%. And then it's it's unlikely um, that it will decrease with with, uh, more than uh, than 9%. Okay, and so so people created these distributions, prediction distributions, for, again, all these companies in the S&P 500. And then we looked at the standard deviation of these distributions. So the standard deviation is a measure of how dispersed these distributions are. Okay, if the standard deviation is smaller, it means that these distributions are tighter. People, and, and they felt that they, get, they could predict um, the outcome for this talk very well. If they're wider, then people are like, no, I, I, don't, I don't really have a clue, right? It's reflected in high standard deviation. So here is the result. So here in our dependent measure is the standard deviation of these prediction distributions instead of just uh, asking people what's the riskiness of this. So this is a measure of perceived risk. And here you see, again, sense of understanding. Again, same pattern of results, a negative relationship. Companies that people find easier to understand have lower standard deviation of distributions. or, In other words, people generate predictions that are, are tighter. They believe that they can predict the performance of um, these stocks. Again, same thing. If you look at, at the actual market data, the true returns, there is no relationship whatsoever between people's sense of understanding and Um, the volatility of of these uh, stocks. Okay, so people rely on their sense of understanding to assess investment risk. Does this have any implications for how people construct portfolios? So in another set of studies, we asked people to construct portfolios, okay, for two types of people. One person was risk-averse. So this for instance is, is Doris. She's 63 years old and about to retire. After retirement, she plans to withdraw some money from her portfolio each year for living expenses. She wants a stable source of income in retirement. Okay, So she's risk-averse. She wants as, as, as little volatility as possible. Here, on the other hand, you have Janelle. She is 27 years old and has been working at her job for five years. She's saved up some money and wants to invest it in a portfolio of stocks. She's willing to tolerate unpredictability and volatility from her investments. So she's, she's more risk-tolerant. She's, she's fine with with some volatility. And so what we find is that, when people construct a portfolio for a risk-averse investor, they invest predominantly in companies that are easy to understand. When people construct a portfolio for an investor that can tolerate risk, they invest much more in companies that are harder to understand. So this, this skew, this heuristic, of using your understanding to assess risk has implications for Um, how people construct portfolios. And in one of our studies, we actually use an expert sample of of investors. So these are people who were registered on an online investing community. So they exchange ideas, and they analyze companies' um, investment opportunities together. Um, On on average, they have more than $100,000 invested in the stock market, and several of them have more than a $1 million invested in the stock market, exactly the same. Um, results for, for these guys. So this doesn't seem to be moderated by expertise. Experts and novices tend to believe that what they understand is less risky, and use that to um, construct portfolios. Um, okay, so this is um, a concluding concluding slide um, for this for this first uh, domain of, of personal finance. It is it is common sense. That knowledge is helpful for making good decisions. And education is important to increase our knowledge. And if we can effectively increase our knowledge, then yes, we can expect to make um, better decisions. But it is really important to be able to identify the boundaries um, of our knowledge. Right? So, what we know here, um, shown this, in this blue circle, is much less than what we don't know. In fact, what we don't know, this red circle, should be much, much larger relative to the blue circle. But it wouldn't fit on the, on the slide. Um, but we, we, know, we don't know 99.9999999% of things. Right? What we know is just a very, very small fraction. And to, to be a good decision maker as a consumer, but also as a manager, as a professional, um, it is important to be realistic about what you know, what the radius is. Of, this, of your circle of competence here. And for most people, when it comes to investing in the stock market, that radius is zero. Most people have no knowledge, even people who claim to be expert investors, have no knowledge that is actually useful for making investing um, decisions. So what should you do instead? Sorry? You guess, or you invest in a diversified portfolio, you invest in everything, you invest in an index fund, et cetera. Uh, cetera. And this is also, by the way, what Warren Buffett um, and Peter Lynch would recommend most of us to do. He's saying, I have the knowledge, I have the expertise to identify investment opportunities. Most regular people, most consumers do not. right? And giving people some information, um, our research suggests may actually be detrimental um, for consumer welfare. No, um, we haven't, but it's one of the things that, that, that we have thought about. So index funds are, um, are becoming much more popular. Um, they're actually very popular in, in the US by now, although many people still invest in individual stocks. They're much less popular in, uh, in Europe. Um, so I think one problem with index funds and mutual funds, so they're, they're a combination of stocks, right, um, is that they're hard to understand because they're a combination of things. Any diversified portfolio is harder to understand than than a single company, right? Does does that make sense? So ironically, this this, uh, heuristic of relying on your sense of understanding to evaluate risk may lead you to the wrong conclusion, the wrong inference about what diversification does. An index fund, a diversified portfolio, hard to understand. So people believe this is risky. While, in fact, diversification reduces risk. So in another set of studies, we show that people have incorrect intuitions about um, diversified portfolios, not directly index funds. But uh, but so I, I think it's important to generalize this research, to generalize this idea to, to different instruments. So we specifically looked at stock markets, stocks here. Um, but think about health insurances, life insurances, etc., cetera, annuities. Um, there is variations in complexity, variations in ease of understanding that will affect people's estimates of um, probabilities of what of what might happen in their lives, or what what the returns might be of different um, insurances. Um, okay, so this is this is kind of uh, um, by, by the way. So this morning I was flipping through my through my slide, and my four-year-old son um, comes to me, and he, he gets really interested in this slide. So this this like a slide that he could have made, and so he asked me, "What is this all about?" And so I explained him, like, "Hey, so what 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 people what people know about many things is very limited." many things that you don't know. And it's really important to be aware of that. And his response was, um, but Philippa doesn't. I can ask Philippa. Filippa is uh, his, uh, his six-year-old sister, so two-year-old. And, and so, so he has this intuition of, like, hey, I, if I don't know, I can ask my older sister. And, and, and it's, I think it is, this illustrates how, how um, resourceful the human mind is. And um, it makes a lot of sense. If you don't know, if you can accurately assess what your circle of competence is, then you know when to ask an expert. And this is what makes our society um, truly great. We are not expected to be experts in uh, many different domains. You can be expert in one thing and benefit from the knowledge of other people. And and apparently even young kids um, very early on in their life um, realize this. Okay, so. Is information power in the domain of, of uh, personal finance? I think a lot of these developments in financial technology, right, the new apps that you're seeing, actually um, have a huge potential to harm, um, harm consumers, because they create an illusion of understanding and they make it easier for people to make um, bad decisions in, in this domain. Um, next domain, online retailing. How am I doing on, on time? Oh, perfect. OK, good. Um, so online, uh, online retailing. Um, here's an article um, by, written by James Cyril Wiecki. Um, and some of you might know him. He's, he's written a lot about the wisdom of crowds. So the idea that if, if people work together, they can be really smart. It's an idea that I, I was just uh, supporting as well. Um, but there are some issues there as well. So in this, in this article he writes, it's a 2014 article in The New Yorker. He writes about Lululemon that does something wrong, and then people start talking about it, it as a negative effect on, on the, the company. But here's kind of the, the essential um, paragraph I want you to focus on. He says, it's a truism of bu- business book thinking that a company's brand is its most important asset, more valuable than technology or patents or manufacturing prowess. But brands have never been more fragile. The reason is simple. Consumers are supremely well-informed and far more likely to investigate the real value of products than to rely on logos. So these are very strong claims. Okay, so in a few sentences, he's saying brands are dead. Companies, businesses, it's time to realize that your brands are not as valuable anymore. What you should do is shift your resources, shift your investments from investing in marketing to, to investing in, in engineering. Right, hire more engineers that can can hire that can create better products because. In this new environment, consumers are supremely well-informed about the objective performance of products. It's just observable. You go to Amazon, and you look at reviews, etc., and, and you can see what the best um, product is. Okay, so a lot of information. Again, the argument is it makes consumers supremely better, uh, supremely well-informed, and and, and thus better, um, better protected. In, in, you know, to, in a, to a large extent, driven by the rise of, of uh, online reviews. So again, let's, let's think a little bit deeper about these issues. Do online ratings give you more information about the objective performance of products? Do they give you um, a better indication of product uh, quality? So let's work through a few examples. So again, we're, we're traveling back 20, 20 years in time. Say it's 2000, okay, and you need to buy a new car seat, car seat for your, uh, for your child. What you would do then is you go to the store and you see a car seat and you, you, you observe what the brand of the car seat is and you also observe um, the price and then you would get an overly enthusiastic salesperson telling you that this is a really good brand, that it's really safe, it's a little bit expensive, but your child's safety is the most important thing in your life and you should definitely buy this car seat. Right? That, is what, what, that is how we made decisions only 20 years ago. Now, not anymore. What we do now is, like, thank you very much, um, Mr. Uh, Salesperson, but you pull out your smartphone, and you go to Amazon, and you start looking into reviews. So for this particular car seat, for instance, gets 4.5 out of 5 stars um, um, on on Amazon. Based on 395 consumers rating this uh, this, uh, product, 75% of consumers gives this a 5-star rating. The most helpful review for this car seat is written by a lucky mom who says that this car seat saved both of her girls' uh, lives. First of all, I never write reviews about anything, but after what happened to my family, I feel like I need to share our experience with this car seat in hopes to save other children's lives. We were in a horrible accident. Both of my girls were in this car seat, in these booster seats, and walked away with minor cuts and bruises. Anyone who saw this car after the accident, especially those who saw it still wrapped around um the traffic light can believe they walked away without critical injuries, um, etc. So this is the most helpful review for this car. So what what do you know now? Is this a good car seat? Right? So you don't listen to a salesperson anymore. You have access to this information. Is this a great car seat? Yes? Is there information in the reviews? Are these reviews, these ratings diagnostic? Some say yes, some say no. Is there any information in Lucky Mom's experience in in reading this review? Some say yes, some say no. So it turns out, how would you test the the true safety, the objective performance, objective safety of this car seat? What would you do? What What are the conditions that you need to create to test whether this car seat is better than other car seats at protecting your child? Crash tests, exactly, simulate, you put the car seats in the car and you simulate a crash test and, and then see which car seat is better. It turns out that there are organizations like Consumer Reports for instance in the US and Test Tank in Belgium, I don't know which organization does it in Spain, but there must be one here, that that does exactly that. They've tested this car seat, it turns out that it is actually not performing very well. It is not at all a very safe uh, car seat. And there's, it was actually in the, in the um, of all the car seats they evaluated in a given issue or in a given month of their uh, journal, it was the worst in the category. And so there is much cheaper car seat, much cheaper booster seat that costs only 50 bucks of lesser known brands that are objectively much safer than this car seat. Okay, so this is an example where if you rely on this new source of information that is available at your fingertips, you might actually make an incorrect um, inference. Let's look at another example, these are, Beats headphones. Who has Beats headphones? A few of you. A few. Are, they, are these great headphones? Yeah. Customers love them. <laughs> Customers love them. They get high ratings. They sell for several hundred dollars. If you, if, you, if you ask the experts, though, they say no. They're not good headphones. Why not? So what would an engineer do to assess what they did? They would do sound tests first. And then they would also decompose the product. And what do you, you find when you decompose headphones? You find that um, the manufacturer has replaced the metal binders, uh, metal clips that are used to tie components together with plastic straps. The problem with the plastic straps is that they're much lighter. And so the, phone, the uh, headphones don't feel sturdy anymore. So they add useless pieces of zinc, which is very cheap, to, to, the phone, to, make, it, to make it feel heavier. Okay, because they know that consumers use that as a cue to evaluate quality. And it's like feels heavy. This must be ah, really good. The the true cost to produce this thing. Anyone want to make a guess? Seven dollars. Seven dollars. So the margins are huge. When Apple bought Beats phones in when was this? Like 2000, I don't know, three years ago or so, um, and they paid three billion dollars to Dr Dre. What did what, what did they what did they buy? Did they buy engineering or did they buy a brand? They bought a brand, right? So brands are not that not even in this information-rich um, environment. Let's think about beauty uh, care, okay? So this is uh, so so beauty um, skincare is one of the fastest-growing segments in the beauty care, and especially anti-aging. All right, we're all getting older, and we don't like um, getting older, so. We invest a lot of our money in anti-aging creams. This industry is based on claims that are scientifically verifiable. Okay, If you use this cream, you're going to have less wrinkles. That is something that you can scientifically test. What you would need to do is buy good measurement instruments and do that. Exactly something that Consumer Reports, for instance, um, does. Consumers love this product. Does this work? It does not work at all. It does not work any better. Than the cheapest lotion you can find in any um, any department store or any uh, any uh, grocery store or whatever. Um, okay, so these are just a few anecdotal examples to give you a sense that what consumers think is good online might not be all that informative. Okay, so what we did four minutes, what we did is is we did a large uh, larger scale study where we, we examined multiple product categories. Like uh, this is what is this. An, uh, glucose um, monitor, air conditioners, bike helmets, uh, fire alarms, uh, laundry detergent, etc. Um, all product categories where you can objectively test which product is better, um, yes or no. And so we published our results in a, in a journal that, that no one no one reads. Um, but so so let me just give you the the, the main uh, the main takeaways. Um, so there the, the good news is there is a correlation between the average rating that consumers give on Amazon, and the true performance of products. So for instance, if this is a product, and this is its average rating, and this is its performance, right? So there, 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 there is an upward trend. The bad news is, it is not a correlation of 0.6, which is fairly high. It is also not a correlation of 0.3. This is a correlation, by the, by the way, between price and the objective performance of products, is 0.3. It is lower than that, it's 0.15. Zero. So this is this is how it looks like. So there's basically almost almost no information in average um, ratings about the objective performance of product. Another way to think about this is if you take randomly a pair of products in a category. So you take two car seats, okay, and you say like, okay, there's one that is rated higher on Amazon, and you look at what the likelihood is that experts agree that the one that is rated higher is indeed the better one. If the difference in star ratings is smaller than 0.4, coin flip, 50% chance that the one that has a lower rating is actually um, the better one. There is some diagnostic value for large differences in star ratings, but it's, it's still very um, minimal. What are some of the problems? I'm sure you can think about them. You don't. Most consumers, when they go to Amazon, they, they, the, the reasons for why ratings might not be so diagnostic don't really come to mind. Um, But now that I sensitize you to potential problems, what are are some of the issues? Okay, so it might be fake reviews. Exactly, there is a very strong selection bias. It's the consumers who like the product in the first place, that bought it, that are then also going to rate it. So what you're gonna get is highly skewed distributions, a lot of fives, right, that's a lot of fives and very few um, more moderate um, ratings. Um, There is a problem with sample sizes. Yes, we have crowds evaluating products, but oftentimes these crowds, I mean, are not that large. This one, 37, six, can you really trust six consumers on the world evaluate? And then how would they evaluate a product? How would you evaluate whether your, your bike helmet is safe or your car seat is safe. You'd, you're rarely in the ideal conditions to evaluate um, product line. So as you can see, there's many problems, and I can give you many more. I don't have the time to get into. This is the selection bias, by the way. This is for like, all ratings on Amazon okay, across all these categories. This is how almost any rating distribution looks like of any product. There is a J-shaped distribution, a lot of fives, very few ratings in the middle, and then a little bump here. Can be explained by selection bias. It looks like Amazon could a uh, take a big bite out of the distribution. It should look like this if you get a representative sample, but you do not get a representative sample um, online. I'm going to skip this. Um, so in a way, you could say we live in a more dangerous world, right? So 20 years ago, when you would see an ad like this, Jennifer Aniston saying Avino. I mean, it's really good, you can't read this, but like, I mean, it's amazing what it does for your skin, and it's not greasy, et cetera. You might say, oh, wow, um, but wait a minute, maybe Jennifer Aniston is paid to say this, and maybe what she's saying is not actually, not actually true. Right? So you may, you may, may start believing, like, hmm, they're trying to persuade me here. Um, now we live in a different world. Now you go to Amazon, and you have Catherine Fisher, And Melissa Snyder writing, this is my favorite hand lotion, and believe me, I've tried my fair share. It's greasy enough to actually help dried hands, but not too greasy that you can't touch anything for an hour after putting it on. What these reviews are doing, they're exactly echoing the advertising claims in this ad, exactly, they're exactly the same um, information. But now you're like, "Oh wow, this comes from Catherine Fisher and from Melissa Snyder. They have no incentive, right? The, The only thing that they're trying to do is to help me, so you believe, What they're saying, they're influencing your decisions, but you're still influenced um, by Jennifer Aniston, only um, indirectly. So I want to make a few concluding thoughts about about consumer protection. Um, So the first is, governments and businesses should and do care about consumer protection. More and more, I see companies that are trying to educate their customers. You see a lot of this in financial uh, world, for instance. BBVA has launched an uh, initiative. Um, around increasing financial literacy and improving um, the education of customers. However, education is difficult. If you just throw some information at consumers, it's not going to help them because there is meaningful information and meaningless information. There's signal and there's noise and separating one from the other is a really hard thing to do for consumers. So throwing information at consumers is not going to help. Also, education about products and services or information about products and services is not enough. We need to educate governments, businesses, and consumers about how the mind works. We need to educate people about the illusion of explanatory depth, about how they make decisions, and how they fall prey to certain um, decision um, errors. And then finally, I think academic institutions, like Esade, we are specialized in education. And we need to take an important um, position and need to play an important role in, um, in educating consumers and increasing um, the level of protection of consumers. So thank you very much. Um, this is it. I also want to thank my collaborators. They're all at the University of uh, Colorado. Phil Fernbach, Donny Lichtenstein, and Andrew Long, who've been involved in uh, some of the, uh, the studies that I presented today. Um, I, I do we have time for questions, or? Oh, great. OK, awesome. About what? Okay, can you explain exactly what you mean? Okay, so that, that is probably the most risky thing to do, right? The, the most unpredictable too I think currency markets are less predictable even than, um, than performance of, uh, of companies in the future. I think there, there is some information. If you have information about a company that other people don't have, then you can make an, a better prediction than other uh, people. Currencies are, are notably uh, hard to predict. Um, in general, though, for stocks and for currencies, if you hold things long term, you increase the likelihood of, uh, of being able to trade at the right moment. Yeah. So, this, yeah, so yeah, so this is the most common response we get from consumers when we present our research. This is also the response that we get from Amazon. Okay? So when New York Times, this, this research has been featured uh, in, in a lot of journals. And so Amazon is asked to respond. And what they're saying is, yeah, but now we're working. We're improving our algorithm. What we're doing is we're re-weighing so we're computing a weighted average, and we're emphasizing more the reviews that are rated as helpful by other consumers and the one that are posted more recently, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're looking into now in a new project is whether this algorithm, that, uh, whether it actually increases the quality um, of the, the, the information in the average. And, and our initial findings suggest no, they actually decrease it. And other initial findings, you and me, are pretty bad at detecting which inf- uh, reviews are informative. I'm getting signals that we need to cut right now. Um, Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm very happy to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. Isade, Inspiring Futures.